It's the Muppeturgy Podcast with our very special sort of first but actually third episode about the Juliet Prowse episode of The Muppet Show! Yay! Welcome or welcome back to Muppeturgy. I'm David Levy and I'm here with... Christy Bauer. Adam Grossworth. Michal Richardson. And if you are just joining us now, we are so happy to have you. If you're wondering why our third episode is about what we think is the first episode of The Muppet Show, Adam's going to explain it to you. So, well, um, you're going to hear me say this a few times, or you have maybe already heard me say this a few times, because uh, The Muppet Show episodes were made in a wildly different order than they aired, and they aired in a completely different order on American TV and British TV, just to make that as confusing as possible. So the official episode numbers, like season one, episode one, are the production order, and that's what IMDb has, and that's the order they're in on the DVD sets that came out in the mid-aughts. But we don't know, because we're recording some episodes early, uh, what order Disney Plus is going to use. So we are jumping around a bit, and we are hoping uh, that we're able to use one or two of what we're recording now as our first one or two episodes. So this is our first real episode, uh, and this was the first real episode of The Muppet Show that they made, but it might be the 22nd episode that you're listening to. Uh, we'll see. Boring. So, uh, this is technically season one, episode one, starring Juliet Prowse. It was the last episode of the season to air in the U.S., though, on April 23rd, 1977, and a little bit earlier in the U.K. on January 16th, 1977. David, who the hell is Juliet Prowse? That's an excellent question. Juliet Prowse was a dancer, uh, also an actress, also kind of a singer, but really famous for being a dancer in a way that I, I don't know that, I guess we have some folks who are famous for being dancers today, like Misty Copeland, but she was a movie star dancer. She first really came to international prominence as the secondary lead dancer in the film version of Can Can. She played Shirley MacLaine's best friend. She then probably had her biggest and flashiest film role as Elvis's love interest in GI Blues. She's also memorable to theater fans because she starred as Charity in the original British production of Sweet Charity, and you can find that cast album still today on streaming services or wherever you listen to your music. She has a funny accent, you may have noticed, and that's because she was born in India, grew up in South Africa, and then I think had her adulthood mainly in England. So she sort of was all over the place. In fact, she has a different accent in every project that I've seen her in, which is a little disorienting. In addition to the screen time that she shared with Frank Sinatra and Can Can and with Elvis and G.I. Blues, uh, the rumor is that she also had romantic relationships with each of them, which is something that she has in common with Mia Farrow from the Valentine special because she also was famously romantically involved with Frank Sinatra. So weird Muppet tie-ins there. And now we know how they chose Muppet Show guest stars. Apparently. (laughs) Proximity to the studio and to Frank Sinatra. (laughs) (laughs) Which is weird, too, because I don't think Frank Sinatra ever did anything with the Muppets. It's probably worth noting that, the, um, for anyone who doesn't know, that the Muppet Show did uh, shoot in England, in London. Um, so there, this, this is not the only time that a, uh, a lesser-known-in-the-U.S. guest star will appear, for, I assume, convenience sake. For theater fans, too, also, Juliet Prowse famously starred in the Long Beach Civic Light Opera production of Follies. Oh. Which I know sounds, if you're not a super fan of that kind of thing, sounds totally obscure, but believe me, that particular production 
holds space in a lot of uh, theater fans' memories and imaginations. Anyway, that's more than enough about Juliet Prowse. So this is where we talk about our general impressions of the episode. I watched it several times, and I don't have... I, I tried to choose a favorite sketch. I tried to choose a least favorite sketch. I... Uh, should have remembered to formulate an overall impression. And maybe it is telling that I didn't have any of those things. So there you go. Totally fair. I found this episode really interesting. I really liked it. And especially coming out of the Valentine special, it's really interesting because it 90% of the way feels like the Muppet show, right? Like Kermit is Kermit. He has his job. His role is really clear. Gonzo's voice is a little funny, but like he is very much Gonzo. Same with Fozzie. Statler and Waldorf are fully formed. Like the structure is there. And so for all the th- ways that we talked about the Valentine special feeling really like weird to us, like this, this is the Muppet show, but then in ways we'll get into, like, it's not quite yet. Like there's a couple sketches that why are they there? And there's actually my favorite sketch that I'll, I'll save to talk about later. But like my favorite sketch is a sketch that I would not be in a later episode, I think. And that is sort of quote unquote wrong in several ways. Um, but I really enjoyed this episode. Yeah, I'm with Adam. I th- I sort of rejoiced at how much this like instantly felt like the Muppet Show compared to the diffuse uh, Clevelandness of the Valentine <laughs> Show. Uh, I, I I was just so happy to like be in the theater space. And the one thing that really struck me about this episode is is the things that. Uh, were super familiar to me were things that were familiar, not from this episode, but because they appeared on compilation VHS tapes in the eighties. And the, the things that feel really polished and great in this episode, as it turns out, were things that they had already done in several iterations before. So this sort of feels like, you know, that, that they're relying on their greatest hits to jumpstart the thing a little bit. Um, but that's that's not a complaint that, if anything, I think is really smart. Yeah, I think I sort of split the difference between those two opinions where the show as a whole didn't necessarily gel for me. But there's so many great individual moments in it that I was really grateful to revisit it. And in fact, I've watched it several times over the last couple of weeks also. And I think part of that is is, like Christy said, that some of these are sketches that they've done over and over again. but also. The history of this episode is that it was one of the first ones they did so that they could sell the episode to different stations. Because if you remember, this show was syndicated, so it wasn't like a network picked it up and then that's all they had to do. They had to really shop it around to to get people to pick it up. And in between the version that they shopped around and the version that they aired, they went back and basically did a second draft, which is a luxury that episodic television does not often get. So they really got to take what was already a decent episode and make it into a pretty good episode by by tightening it up in that way. And I think it really benefits from that. And the main thing that was added was all of the scooter stuff. And as you will quickly learn, I am super gay for scooter. So I really, (laughs) I mean, I'm super gay, period, but also super gay for scooter. I really enjoy the through line that they have with scooter trying to make his act happen and then when his act happens, which we'll talk about in a second, uh, I think it's a real highlight of the show. And like Christy, a lot of these bits feel super familiar to me, not only because they were on these compilation albums, but also because the significant portion of this was on the Muppet Show original cast album, which is a cassette tape 
that I had as a kid and listened to over and over and over and over again. Could I also just throw in that I, I don't want to sound like I'm down on this episode because even though I I didn't have any outstanding sketches that um, really made me think this is one of the greats, there were so many things that I appreciated throughout that they they may have still been kind of pulling together what they were like as a show and what their running gag was going to be, but there were so many little moments of puppeteering and design that I really enjoy. So I I did have a lot of little favorite moments from the show. Ready, three, two, one, fire! Poor Gonzo, we're going to fire him out of that cannon every episode so that we can talk about the elements of the episode that became canonical. This episode's a great one because right out of the gate, the very first sketch is Manamana, which is perhaps the most canonical Muppet Show sketch that there is. Which is interesting because, uh, as Christy mentioned, this is one that did not originate on The Muppet Show. It is one that they had done on Sesame Street. They'd done it on Ed Sullivan. uh, But it became its most perfect version here on The Muppet Show. Adam, do you want to talk a little bit about this? Sure. So I I knew everything you just said, except for the Sesame Street part. I, I, I had seen various talk show versions of this before. I did not know that the first version of this was... Uh, from Sesame Street, you have to watch it. It is so creepy. And it's so creepy that it's on Sesame Street. It's these two little girls, um, not the Snows, um, who are the creatures on the famous version. Um, And it starts with them saying, we could sing a good song if we had one more person to sing. Why? Why can't you sing a good song by yourselves, little girls? I don't understand. I don't understand what lesson you're teaching children. And then the, the Jim Henson... Muppet that arrives is not the Menomenal creature who is sort of scary on his own, but this sort of, again, humanoid Muppet, but like with a full beard and he looks very creepy and he definitely looks like an adult compared to these two little girls. Or like a doll who's come to life. Like he doesn't quite look Muppety. Yeah. But like a, like a creepy <laughs> adult doll who's come to life to molest them. And he starts to sing Menomenal. And then it's basically the bit that we know, but like, it's very weird. And what I also found really interesting watching them back to back was that in the Muppet version, it's sort of the, the bit is sort of that, that the snows are, are singing and he's interrupting them and annoying them. And in the Sesame street version, the girls are very much singing back up to the dude, even though it's the exact same song and the exact same, the little, the, the words are, it's, it's not to do to do do it's but whatever. Like the, but the whole like framing is different and like, particularly for that to be on Sesame street. I'm like, so the lesson that you're teaching the children is you actually can't sing a song without an adult. And then you have to sing back up to him. I don't know. I found it very strange and slightly upsetting, but I've also now watched it like 10 times. Happy 1969, everybody. The lesson is about how you can play with more people and it's good to expand your yeah. friends. I just, there's just a lot of choices within that, that I found very strange. Like, why is it not another child puppet? Like, why is it this bearded, dirty hippie puppet. Um, I think for Sesame, when, when Sesame started and they were generating content like every single day of the year, sometimes they just had the sketch and then kind of shoehorned in the kid content after. Yeah. And I'm sure they were like, Oh, it's funny and it's cute. And I'm sure it was, and I'm sure I'm overthinking it. And if I were an actual child, none of this would cross my mind, which is the point, but that's where I am with original mama. I love, of course, Muppet show. He's pretty great. So we we didn't uh, touch on where this song came from. 
which uh, was a, an Italian, what they called Mondo films, which are these exploitative, like sort of documentaries. Um, and in particular, the, a movie uh, called Sweden, Heaven and Hell, that was sort of about sex. Um, so the, the origin of it is a little salacious, which is, I think the, the funniest part of it, or, of this originating on Sesame street, but it, uh, and it was on the radio f- for a, a brief period of time in 1968. It, I think it peaked at 55 on the chart. Um, but it's also part of an interesting tradition of nonsense songs that popped up in the late sixties and early seventies in Europe. Um, it, it reminded me a lot of uh, Adriano Celentano's Prison Colin Ensign and Shoesall, which is a nonsense song that uh, was written to mimic the sound of American speech to Italians. <laughs> and th- there are a few others, but uh, it, it's delightful to me that, that this started in one place and ended up in a very, very, very different place. <laughs> and Frank Oz has gone on the record that although... He's not sure that they chose it because it came from that film. And he's not even 100% sure he's seen that film. It's also entirely possible because the film did run at an art house theater not far from where the Muppet offices were at the time that he and Jim did take in that film at some point and and that's how it made its way into the Muppet repertoire. So one other thing that I just found really interesting about this, and then we've probably said more than enough about Menomina, even though there's three characters in this scene, there's only two puppeteers. Jim's doing Menomina, and both notes are simultaneously being performed by Frank Oz, one on each hand, which I just find incredible when you think about the kind of coordination and, and like what you need to be doing in your head to, to do that and keep it straight and have them each feel like an individual uh, working in tandem, which they do, and that's super impressive to me. That's incredible. Also on the puppetry, um, Michal has broken me. Um, after pointing out Wally's arms in the Valentine special, I was super aware of Menomina's um, flappy little arms. So, thanks. in the Muppet Show version or in the Sesame version? In the Muppet Show version. Okay, because in the Sesame version, the the arms are very disturbing. Yeah, in the Muppet version, they're less disturbing, but they don't have rods. They're just they're just there. Now that I've noticed, I will never unsee it. And now I've shared that curse with all of you. Thank you, Adam. <laughs> I do really love about Menomina's design that it it really seems like they were meant to be doing this sketch together kind of for eternity. Like this is their purgatory where the, <laughs> the snows are definitely showgirls. They're there to sing a song. They've got this adorable pink shag and big eyelashes and they were designed with this. I, and it, it says that Jim designed both Menomini and, and the snows. I don't know if he designed them in tandem or if he had the ideas separately, but they've got this like yellow rim around their mouth. And Menomini has this yellow rim around his eyes, which are maybe supposed to be sunglasses, because he's kind of this cool cat, hipster dude. And he's got this lovely green shag offsetting their pink shag bodies. But they all have this like yellow rim where like their mouths are trying to sing a song and his little little yellow rimmed eyes are like, I'm going to disrupt your song. <laughs> and they just keep going with this. Like they they're there to they definitely were built in some way where it it is evident that they are supposed to be in the same shot together. And I think that's very sweet. That's an, I forgot about this. So you said the thing about his eyes. Like I had always read his eyes as sunglasses. Uh, he's in the museum of the moving image here in Queens and his eyes are voids. His eyes are like black cones and they're sort of terrifying, like in, in person. 
And like, the first time I saw him in real life, I was sort like slightly disturbed. But that's an interesting thing about puppetry design in general, which I'm sure will come up again, is, is both that like, they're made for TV, right? They're made to read a certain way on TV. And that there's, I think, a deliberate darkness in some of them. Um, that I think, I think this puppet sort of walks that line in a really interesting way. Yeah, he's got these sunglasses until they blink at you. <laughs> right. <laughs> so let's move on and talk about Gonzo. Because Gonzo is an, a new character when The Muppet Show starts. He's been adapted from a frackle from the Greek Santa Claus switch. But really, although it's the same puppet, he's really coming into his own here. And he really spends a significant part of the first season coming into his own. But unlike some of the other Muppets where you feel like it's because the puppeteer hasn't quite figured out exactly their way into this character. To me, Gonzo it reads much more like a character arc. And I think we'll talk more about that in future episodes, but does anyone want to talk about Gonzo's act eating the tire to the tune of flight of the bumblebee? I mean, it's quintessential Gonzo. Like that's the most Gonzo that you can get pretty much. I mean, it's also, this is a sketch that's on the Muppet Show original cast album. So it is so seared in my brain and it's seared in my brain without the visuals. So every time I see it, it strikes me as like a, a little surprising because I already had like a very clear idea of what it's supposed to look like in my head. Mm-hmm. And as a child, I always wonder, what does it mean to eat to the tune of something? <laughs> <laughs> do you chew on the rhythm or off the beat? I'm going to try this at dinner. I do appreciate that during that sketch, something seems to be happening to Kermit where he's he's been talking to Muppy and then he realizes, oh, I'm I'm on stage. <laughs> How did that happen? And then partway through, he's looking on at Gonzo from the wings and he's got on a tux. When did he had, he had time to put on a tux within, I think, under a minute? There, there's something going on. <laughs> I, this I, is why eventually yeah. they get to promote Scooter to become a stage manager because they realize that they desperately need a stage manager. Yeah, because Kermit is emceeing and starring and he has to do a lot of extremely quick costume changes that probably wore on him quickly. So another sketch that premieres in this episode that becomes a staple of season one and then disappears pretty much after that is at the dance. Do we have at the dance feelings? Well, we got to see uh, George and Mildred again. I do feel like now I'm rooting for them. Like there are. <laughs> I also learned uh, from Muppet wiki and God bless Muppet wiki. They're such a huge help to us that uh, Mildred's last name is Huckstetter. Yeah. She comes from a very old family from Spokane, Washington, apparently. <laughs> Oh, the Spokane Hooks editor. Does George have a last name? That I don't the, know. The janitor? I... Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> George, George T. T. Janitor. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, lo- I love At the Dance. Um, I, I, I always had it as a child, even though I probably didn't get half the jokes. I just, it's silly and it makes me happy. I don't know that I have anything deep to say about it, but. It's such an efficient delivery system for one-liners. Yeah. Apparently yeah. the Muppet writers really hated At the Dance. because oh, really? One-liners wasn't really their thing they were much more about character driven writing so uh, i just finished or i'm about to finish reading the jim henson biography so i apologize i'm going to keep being like well i learned from this same book that i keep talking about but i'm gonna mm-hmm. do that so in the first season of the muppet show the head writer was jack burns who was hired because he had a real history with variety show and there was a little bit of tension in the writer's room between jack who comes from the variety show tradition and 
the rest of the Muppet writers who were part of the Muppet team, and especially Jerry Jewell, who was sort of the Muppet's head writer up until that point. And so anything I think that was a little bit too much considered a jack bit might get a little resentment. And this, I think, is is sort of key among those. Another segment that's recurring that really feels like it comes very directly from the variety show tradition is the talk spot. Thoughts about talk spot? It uh, wins my award for second most of its time moment of the episode. The whole, the whole shtick, the whole talk spot is uh, Kermit trying to get Juliet to kiss him. That's that's the whole spot. We don't learn anything about her. You know, your average frog doesn't have a lot going for him in the looks department. Oh, I don't know. I think you're quite attractive. Really? Mm-hmm. You're not just saying that because you're a guest. Well, certainly not. In fact, I'd go as far as to say that you are the Robert Redford of frogs. Oh, wow. Hey, hey listen, everybody. Did you hear that? Juliet Prowse thinks I'm the Robert Redford of frogs. Hey, you're going to be coming back on this show a lot. <laughs> hey, hey, listen, have you ever kissed Robert Redford? Uh, no, I haven't. Uh, how about uh, <clears throat> kissing the next best thing? You mean to tell me that Paul Newman is here? <laughs> I mean me, Robert Redford of Frogdom. Ah, uh, my pleasure. Mm. More, more, less, less. Which elicits an awe from the audience. Ah, what a what a tender moment as Kermit on stage tries to coerce somebody into kissing him. I do like that she gives him a little shit about it first. I appreciated that. You mean Paul Newman is here is a good joke. Yeah. yeah. And it's not the first reference to Robert Redford and Paul Newman in the episode, sort of, which is maybe a great transition to our next segment. Hit it, Adam. So that transition music will be less weird when we talk about episodes where Menomina is not part of the episode, but it is <laughs> the way that we signal that we're going to talk about the music of the episode. We're going to start with the big dance number, which is done to Solace, a Mexican serenade, which is a Scott Joplin piece from 1909, which was also featured prominently in The Sting, which starred Robert Redford and Paul Newman. Oh. And in fact, it's the opening track on the very, very popular soundtrack to The Sting. So in some ways, Juliet Prowse didn't, she didn't get to kiss Robert Redford, but she did get to kind of dance with him. Or she's dancing to this music while he looks morosely at a subway stop. Is that what's happening in that scene in the sting? I think so. Well, we'll, we'll, we'll say she's spiritually connected with him through dance. Yeah. Thanks, Scott Joplin. I clipped that section because it also, and I don't know this piece at all, but it, it that feels really 70s. The arrangement feels really 70s to me on top of everything else. It also gives you a little bit of a sense of why it's called Mexican Serenade. Sure. Yeah. Maybe it always sounds like that, but it, it was like, this could be one of the more boring parts of Pippin. I don't know. It just felt very <laughs> strange to me. And I, I, to me, that all that brass sounds like very Muppet show, but. Yeah. 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 That too. It's interesting. Uh, because this is not the first time that I I had seen uh, a Muppet blacklight sequence. Um, it reminded me of 
I, I saw Sesame Street Live in like 1987 or 1988, and they did a whole thing with Bert and Ernie dancing with umbrellas in blacklight. And I'd never made the connection that this was a thing that was an inherently Muppet thing. I just thought that they did that because it was the late eighties. Uh, the other thing that was wild about that Bert and Ernie uh, dance is they were dancing to Axel F from Beverly Hills Cop. <laughs> <laughs> it was extremely eighties. <laughs> so uh, I was sort of delighted to see that it had a uh, Muppet show route. So there are a couple of things that are interesting to me about the specifics of this number, which I have to say, I always found a little boring because it's so boring. <laughs> I'm just, I'm not as into like the art of puppetry as I think uh, Jim Henson might hope I would be uh, on the one hand, you know, Jim got his start really doing puppetry for TV. Uh, he wasn't just a puppeteer. He was a television puppeteer and he was really a pioneer in some of the things that you can do on TV that you can't do in a live show. Like for example, in this one, there's the use of chroma key to erase the bodies of the puppeteers who are controlling the gazelles. And at the end, when the gazelles dance towards you and like come straight to the camera, that's like a, a Jim Henson signature move that television puppeteers prior to him had never really done. They didn't use that third dimension. But what's extra interesting for me is that in the early 70s, he did get interested in puppetry also as uh, as a live stage performance technique. And I think as the Muppets were becoming more famous from their appearances on other shows before they had their own shows, he was looking for ways to expand on that and was trying to create uh, a live Muppet show, which uh, on the DVDs they talk about as being aimed at Broadway and the biography, they talk about it being aimed at Lincoln center. And this piece was developed for that project. So it's interesting to me that as much as the version we see on the Muppet show is very much reliant on television techniques that is actually adapted from something that was as far away from television technique as possible. Um, and I think that speaks to his willingness to, to innovate and also his willingness to iterate on his ideas uh, and the way in which something that he originally conceived for one venue can get totally reconceived to work in another. Yeah. As boring as this is, I mean, you just, that's everything that I, that I, what I really like about it, especially sort of as a statement of purpose, even though this wound up airing much later, um, that it's like, Hey guys, it's a, it's a puppet show, right? Like that it's this, these weird, we didn't really say this in case people haven't watched the episode, right? It's, it's Juliet Prowse dancing with these gazelle puppets that, that are, are, they are Muppet ish. They are not, you know, Julie Taymor's Lion King gazelles, but they are not the Muppets as we think of them. And so it's, it's really saying, you know, here's, here's, we are letting our guest star do the thing that she does. And we are going to show you some artistic puppetry. And even though I found it very boring, I really appreciate that. Like in, in the pilot, this is a thing that they are doing. Um, it just feels like a very strong statement. There's also, I think it's right before this. Um, when we see Kermit at his desk, um, he's drinking a glass of milk. And, you know, the, the milk is going down in the glass and he looks right at the camera and says, think about this, friends, because obviously a puppet can't drink milk. Right. So, like, it's, there's no no one's trying to trick the audience. Right. It's it's puppets all the way. I, don't, I, I appreciate that. Yeah. There's a lot about this piece that is pretty. The set is pretty. The puppets are pretty. They move in this graceful, bouncy way. Uh, not like real gazelles, but something like puppet gazelles should move, I would think. And Juliet Prowse is doing her 
dancey thing. I think there was something about it that didn't quite come together for me because it was supposed to kind of showcase the puppetry and her dancing. So it kind of did neither. But I, I, I'm glad to know that this was being developed for the stage at some point because I think we would get a better sense of what she was doing and what the puppets were doing if we were seeing it on a stage. And I do think that that the thing that ends up sort of torpedoing this number is the fact that there's just not enough space in the square of a television to do what this number is supposed to do. So it all feels a little claustrophobic having her trying to dance plus have like four, I think, other puppets around her. It's just, it's a lot for a small space for an art form that is not generally thought of as something that works best in small spaces. Yeah. So, so you and I and George uh, is the UK spot for this particular episode. So it didn't appear in the originally syndicated versions of the show in America. It's one of Ralph's signature bits. He'd been doing it for quite a while at that point. He first did it in 1966 on the Mike Douglas show. And there's one that he did. Jim made an appearance in 1989 on the Arsenio Hall show where he actually did some demonstration of the puppets. He had Ralph do uh, you and I and George on that. It's worth looking up. It's on YouTube. It, it's really, really great. But the song uh, is sort of a specialty number that was written by a guy named Red Kelly, who was the bass player for the Stan Kenton band, the jazz band in the 50s. And it was recorded on an album in 1959 called Kenton Live from the Las Vegas Tropicana. And According to the liner notes on that album, uh, I, I just have to read this. It's very funny. It says, you and I and George must be heard to be, to be disbelieved. It introduced the voice of Red Kelly backed by a trombone choir of fellows named George. All the trombones were named George? I, I, I Unclear. <laughs> George is a good name for a trombone, I say, yeah. as a former trombone player. <laughs> but it's such a funny bit. It's, it's one that even though it, it's one of the most familiar bits to me from its various appearances and the compilations and whatnot makes me laugh every single time. Yeah. It's delightful. If I, if I have a favorite sketch from this episode, it's this one. Um, the, the song itself is such a quick joke. It does its thing and then it gets off stage. And, but they also give Ralph this long intro. But why you ask? As well you should. Have I never heard this great song of our times? The fact is, nobody has ever heard of this ever-popular classic. In its only recording, you and I and George sold two copies. I bought one and George bought one. Where were you? And if I have an award to give for the, the best line delivery of the episode that's the where were you he looks right at you <laughs> and he really is demanding to know why didn't you buy his album it's so delightful it's also worth mentioning that uh david bowie liked to do this live and there's at least one youtube video of him doing it it's very sweet so check out our website we'll include all of those videos on the blog about this episode and uh, check out our spotify playlist and you can hear the Red Kelly version from that Stan Kenton album. I, I also just want to add that Rolf recorded a personality album called Old Brown Ears is Back, which was actually recorded in the 80s, but not released until the 90s after Jim Henson died. Uh, and it is a delightful album that is sadly out of print, but happily, at least as of this recording, available in its entirety on 
YouTube, and he does perform this song there as well. Seconded. It's a delightful album. I'm glad to hear it's on YouTube. Everybody go listen. Speaking of delightful songs, the one song that was added to this episode in between the pilot version and the broadcast version was Simon Smith and His Amazing Dancing Beer, which uh, I love. That's one of those songs that I sort of assumed was a Muppet Show original until I was an adult and discovered that actually it was a song written by Randy Newman that has a long recording history. Uh, it was first recorded by Harper's Bazaar, although Randy eventually also recorded his own version, as have a whole lot of other people, pop singers, jazz singers, cabaret singers. Besides the song itself being utterly charming, I think this is a great example, much like Menomina, of when the Muppets are firing on all cylinders, why they are the best at what they do. Because they take an already charming song, they do a, a, a very solid performance of it, but then they overlay not just a bit, but really like a story of what's going on among the characters that's really rooted in who they are that that elevates what's going on from just a performance of the song to really a sketch. And in this one, Scooter is is performing the vocals and Rolf is in the background playing piano. And Fozzie, who is subbing in for Muppy the Dog, who had contract demands that Kermit could not meet, Fozzie plays the titular bear and... <laughs> It's just so funny because, you know, he he jumps into this scene uh, not really knowing what he's in for, just that Scooter needs someone to play the bear and suddenly finds himself with like an iron cuff around his neck on a chain that Scooter's holding. And Fozzie starts by being totally freaked out by this, trying to get out of it, then realizes that he's on stage, that he can draw focus and capture the hearts of the audience. And so the song becomes almost like a challenge duet between Scooter as a singer and Fozzie doing shtick. And it's just, I just, I love it. I think it's its everything that that is excellent about the Muppets when they're doing their best. I also learned, according to Muppet Wiki, uh, Richard Hunt and Frank Oz did this at the uh, New York Memorial for Jim Henson. Oh, And that's also on YouTube, so we can include that clip. I, I like that. It's not even like a joke, really, but this this... I think my all-time favorite episode, I don't even want to spoil what it is, but this is sort of a, a thing that will come up that like the whole premise of the of the climactic sketch makes no sense. Um, and this is one of those because like it was supposed to be Simon Smith and his dancing dog, but you know, everything in the song rhymes with bear. And I don't know, I just I just enjoy that for some reason. Um, I hate the song. I, I hate Randy Newman always, but <laughs> I could watch Fozzie mugging forever. It's just like such a good example of like why these puppets are so funny. All the faces he makes delight me to no end. I don't know that we really need to talk about the Western sketch that much because it's just not that interesting, but um, Fozzie is off model here. Um, he is, uh, his mouth is articulated at the corners and his ears wiggle. And um, the, the DVDs have these like trivia pop-ups that are kind of fun. Um, that apparently made the puppet very heavy and they decided it wasn't necessary, which is also just a fun puppetry fact. I like, right. That they, they didn't need the extra expression because he was expressive enough. And I, I, I like how in, in, in the Western sketch, you, they use that a lot smiling and frowning. And in this, they, they don't really right. It's much more classic Fozzie, even though it's the old puppet. I just like that. It sort of drives home the simplicity of, of what his face can do without all of that. I was very unnerved by the, uh, the, the lit uh, apple bomb, though, even though I knew it was just a sparkler, actual sparks that close to puppets. <laughs> it was really upsetting to me. And I, I will add that uh, 
<laughs> when Fozzie realizes that he's holding a lit apple. <laughs> and he does this adorable thing where he hugs Rolf for dear life, which is a thing that uh, happens when he's on stage with Kermit and things explode too. He just <laughs> he just reaches to somebody for comfort and safety <laughs> when things are exploding in his face. It's, it's just very sweet. Uh, and I guess I could give the... Uh, First, most of its time is that. Does that work as a phrase? Oh uh, yeah, that's right. That's yeah, right. that <laughs> there is a joke where there's a big scary monster, um, and Ralph says, "Hello, Miss Kitty." That's the joke. It's a, you didn't expect him to. You didn't expect him to be greeting a lady monster. That's the joke. Yeah, it's a cute monster though. Yeah, I'd hang out with Miss Kitty. Adam, were you going to talk to us about Muppet Glee Club? Uh, yeah, this was, I mentioned this earlier, this was my favorite sketch in the episode, um, even though it does not really feel like a thing that they would do later on in a bunch of ways. Um, just to set it up again, in case you're weird and are not watching, <laughs> why are you listening to us if you're not watching The Muppet Show? Um, it's, a, it's, 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 a, it's a Glee Club, it appears to be a Glee Club rehearsal, but they are on stage performing at The Muppet Show. It's a row of pigs, a row of chickens, and a row of frogs being conducted by Kermit. I would like to point out to all assembled here that this is a Glee Club. Oh, yes, that is what our letter head says. Yes, so when I wave this stick so wonderfully, I would like to hear something. We were remiss in that regard. Okay, here we go. One more time. The Muppet Glee Club. One and two and... Over hill, over dale, we will hit the dusty trail as the case time. Oh, wait, 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 hold, hold, hold. Hold it, hold it, hold it, hold it, hold it. Hold it. Hold it. Uh, how shall I say this? Uh, excuse me, friends, but uh, to my ears at least, it would help a lot if you were all singing the same song. One and two and I don't know, it's not even that funny, but I just like there's something about like the whole concept of like it's a glee club rehearsal, but no, like nobody understands why they're there. They start out thinking that they're there to just watch Kermit conduct nothing and then they, you know, get, they wind up singing this very strange song perfectly. It's just, there's something very Muppety about it, even though it's not actually the sort of thing they wind up doing. We talked in the Valentine's Day special, David brought up like Muppet animals that are animals versus Muppet animals that are Ralph and Kermit. So I was very aware that the chickens are talking because Muppet chickens don't usually talk later. Mm. Um, they're just chickens. Um, and these chickens had bodies. Mm. Yeah, they're right. They're wearing evening gowns. Yeah, so it looks like they have like upright, long, like humanoid bodies. I don't. I, it, it just it totally freaked me out. Oh, I really like their gowns. They they look ready for action. Yeah, they do. The frogs, the non Kermit frogs, who also appear in the Valentine special. I don't think we talked about them. They're inside the piano. It's a it's an upright piano, and they pop out every time there's a number um, of the top. Um, and so they're they're in the front row. I'm delighted by them. I don't know. I just, it just, I don't know. I just really enjoyed it. And I, I, I think it stood out to me because it was a little weirder than what they, what they do later on. But I also go. love that the song that they all agree on is this really weird, <laughs> obscure old song. The song that I know from it, it being a, an instrumental in the background of a party scene and singing in the rain. It's written by uh, Nacio Herb Brown and Arthur Freed, whose songs are the spine of singing in the rain. 
And it was in a Bing Crosby movie in 1933 called Going Hollywood. Perry Como had a hit with this song and he would uh, record it a few times over his career. So I think it it's another one of those songs that might have been more familiar in the 70s than it is today. Assuming that the Perry Como audience is the same audience as the Muppet Show audience, which hard to say. It, does, it feels very 60s to me. It's, it's surprising to learn that it's actually so much older than that. My favorite Muppet of this entire episode is the little way we're remiss in that regard, Frog, who also wants to sing the caissons go rolling along. Just <laughs> He's there with his own agenda. And I mean, good thing everybody's favorite song is Temptation. If you pay close attention to this sketch when you watch it, at one point during the ruckus, uh, you actually can see the face of Muppet performer Dave Goals pop up underneath the uh, I think he's underneath the chicken which I think is also just part of what makes this work so well is that there is sort of a a looseness and a freedom to it that gets a little bit out of hand to the point where we actually see one of the performers that you're not supposed to see but also that's why all of those ad-libs feel so fun and so funny because I think they were all ad-libs and just my favorite Kermit is when the rest of the Muppets are out of control and that makes him frustrated. And this is a great example of that. Yeah. Um, and sort of the beginning of Piggy, Kermit, they haven't decided what that's going to be yet or what Piggy is going to be yet. Um, but, you know, that's the seed of that is here. And Miss Piggy was voiced by both, or performed, I should say, by both Frank Oz and Richard Hunt in this episode. Um, actually, in this sketch, I think, <laughs> depending on whether she's speaking or singing. So you, sort of that voice keeps changing. Yeah, Frank was puppeteering her, and then Richard Hunt did her singing voice. So, And Frank Oz also did her speaking voice. So there's a confusing display for Miss Piggy here. I, I also had a question for the group, because uh, when Kermit says, Piggy honey, are are they honeys at this point? I think he's being a gross man. Uh, yeah, that, that was my next guess. Yeah, that's how I read it too. Yeah, same. He, he might have said honey to one of the chickens just as much as to Piggy. Yeah. Well, she seems to see it as an opportunity, which she literally leaps upon. I respect that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if my director called me honey, I'd also pin him to the floor. At, would I? Well, listen, after Kermit pulled that shit with Juliet Prowse, like, it, what goes around comes around. <laughs> yeah. Two other things about this song that uh, connect to later Muppet episodes. Uh, in season five, we'll get a different rendition of Temptation, uh, where it's performed by octopuses. Sure. And also, the style in which they perform it is very reminiscent of a later Miss Piggy performance when she does What Now My Love and she's sort of competing with her background singers who are doing the dun da 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 dun da 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 dun. I actually thought it was the same song until this moment. So I'm glad you cleared that up. Because <laughs> that's one that's one that I remember very well. Uh, not that well, apparently. But uh, And again, that was on one of the Muppet Show albums, I think, which is why the What Now My Love sticks in my head so much. Yeah, that makes sense. To, that It's in my head as well with that same kind of backup. I, I wrote down for this, she has no gloves and she has hands and I don't like it. That was, <laughs> but in general, I don't like Miss yeah. Piggy 
when she still has this face. Yeah, this early mm-hmm. Piggy, like early Fozzie's a little off, but early Piggy is way unsettling. Yeah, there's there's a lot going on with that face that is a little unnerving. But if if uh, the gloves have come off because she's uh, set out to do whatever it is that she does to Kermit at the end of the sketch, then the, that makes sense. The gloves have come off. Do you think she keeps the gloves on, generally speaking? I th- yeah, we don't usually... Wait, do we ever see her without gloves outside of this sketch? Yeah, no, I was being gross. We can just cut that out. It's fine. Oh, okay, <laughs> right over my head. <laughs> that's, a, I'm, that's good. I'm happy for you that it went over your head. <laughs> speaking of things that are unsettling, uh, at the end of the episode, Kermit presents Juliet with a Muppet of herself. Um, which in the abstract is great. Who among us would not want a Muppet of ourselves? Um, but I, I'm just going to play the clip. Uh, and, and as a little token of our appreciation, we have a Muppet likeness of you right here. Oh, how sweet. Now, I know you'd rather have the cash, but... No, uh, no, no, Kermit. This is just wonderful. Oh. Uh, can I come home with you? Well, of course you can. Well, she's not as pretty as you, you know, but... Uh... Oh, Kermit, thank you. Mwah. Hmm. Thank you. The Muppet is alive. The Muppet is sentient. The Muppet what? is being sold into slavery. The Muppet, she has to bring the Muppet home, take care of the Muppet. I didn't even think about the slavery aspect. It's so creepy. I don't like it at all. This is the opposite of canon, where this was clearly something they were going to keep doing, and then after the first two pilot episodes, they stopped immediately. I have to imagine it was expensive and time-consuming to, to build one of these for each guest. Yeah. I also don't know that she actually got to take it home because uh, there is a, like a Muppet background player in the Vilcommon sketch in the Joel Gray episode that I think might be the same puppet. Interesting. We'll we'll talk about that when we get there. Yeah, it's just, it really weirded me out. <laughs> I didn't like it at all. And that's like, so like they have the ability to build Muppets? Like, is that how Kermit's going to get his kiss finally? Just create a Muppet of Juliet Prowse, and uh, it, it's the whole thing. It's Well, listen, we know canonically that Muppets, some Muppets anyway, can you know rearrange their features sure. without hurting themselves, and uh, this is just an actual extension of that. I don't like it. Yeah, let's not, let's not think too hard about the philosophy of Muppets and their personhood. Yeah, well, no, now I'm thinking about it. <laughs> sorry, no, to, sorry, not sorry. Yeah, no. The, does she have to like do? Uh, who, I don't know who takes care of the Juliet Prowse estate, but are they taking care of a sentient Juliet Prowse Muppet? Did she have you know children who are trying to remember their mother, but instead they have this creepy Muppet <laughs> who looks like their mother following them around? I'm going to worry about this for them. Well, listeners, if anyone knows the answer, please contact us. My work here is done. <laughs> <laughs> All right. This is a good moment to to move into last thoughts. Anyone have uh, final musings about the Juliet Prowse episode? I have a couple. Uh, one is I noticed uh, Michal mentioned in the uh, Valentine's episode that they, t- uh, in the future, move into alternating between using puppet dogs and real dogs. And in uh, the Gonzo eating the tire sketch uh, behind Kermit, as Kermit's musing, uh, a real dog climbs the stairs. And it was just a a nice, like, blink and you'll miss it 
detail that I appreciated. But I also found myself uh, thinking about this in the broader ecosystem of variety shows in the seventies and the, uh, the Western sketch felt very apart from the explosions felt very much like the Carol Burnett show to me and the Juliet Prowse's boa turning into a, a live thing with teeth. Uh, the quickness of it felt very laughing to me. So I, I think there's a lot of uh, DNA of pre-existing shows baked into these early episodes. Uh, the DVDs, uh, I think we mentioned, have these, like, at least season one has these, like, pop-up trivia things and just a couple things that we didn't naturally get to but that I think are interesting. Just because I'm, like, a stagecraft nerd, um, the steps to the dressing room uh, can be removed. So, like, if there's ever a, an angle, like, a that angle of Kermit at his desk with the with the stairs in the back, in the background and a Muppet walking up or down, that's that's how that happens. Um, and apparently in something, in something non Muppet show, um, Fran Brill, um, operated the Miss Piggy puppet, um, though she wasn't technically Miss Piggy yet, but it just made me wonder about a world where Miss Piggy was and is played by a woman and what that might've been like. I I learned that in the original foreign language dubs of the Muppet show, in some countries, Miss Piggy was played by a woman. And then when Disney got control of the Muppet catalog, they commissioned new foreign <gasps> language dubs and had Miss Piggy played by a man in those. I don't even know how to feel. That's it's very complicated. Yeah. Wow. I would like to just add as a final thought for this episode, all of these sketches are fun and cute and lots of great stuff happens. And, um, as might be expected for me, all of my favorite moments are from Statler and Waldorf, uh, interstitially. They, Waldorf explodes a cigar in Statler's face. Statler disappears. Waldorf punches Statler. And for some reason, punching Statler means that both of their faces do that adorable scrunched up thing. <laughs> it's, yeah. I could watch them all day. I mean, I could also watch them up at show all day, but it would, it would be less without Statler and Waldorf. Agreed. Thanks for listening to this episode of Muppeturgy. By the time you hear this episode, The Muppet Show will be on Disney+, Plus, so we hope you'll watch along and share your thoughts with us. You can find us on your favorite social network at Muppeturgy or on the web at Muppeturgy.com. Our theme music was composed and performed by Christy Bauer. Our show logo was created by Todd Bryan Backus. This episode was edited by me, David Levy. I mean, I learned the term Mondo film. I'm excited to use it. (laughs) 